Welcome to Stop Christian Nationalism, a podcast that encourages Americans to take a stand against those who seek to use the power of government to force all Americans to convert to Christianity. The portion of the population of the United States that chooses not to be Christian is rising, especially among younger generations. Part of the change is that Americans have watched Christianity embrace the politics of hate. Another part of it is that Americans have become more aware of alternative paths through life. The choice isn't merely whether to believe in Christianity or not. There are an infinite number of other possibilities. So 40% of Americans are non-Christian now. That's about 133 million non-Christians in the United States. Imagine the terrible power it would require to force all of those people to convert to Christianity. That is exactly what the Christian nationalists have in mind. Christian nationalism is the religious belief that the United States is a Christian nation and it should be ruled according to the harsh laws of Christianity. Christian nationalists hate pluralistic democracy. They believe that there is just one proper way to live and they are willing to do whatever it takes to compel everybody to follow their rules. That's why this podcast is dedicated to stopping Christian nationalism. We seek a nation in which people are free to be Christians if that is truly what they want to be. What we want to stop are the efforts to use the power of government to force people into Christianity. The opposite of Christian nationalism is freedom. So Christian nationalists don't want that. They don't want Americans to have the freedom to choose not to be Christians. In fact, they want the opposite of freedom. They want war. This week, Mark Burns, a Christian nationalist, televangelist, and pastor of the Harvest Praise and Worship Center in South Carolina, had this to say. I've come in here to declare war on every demonic, demon-possessed Democrat that comes from the gates of hell. I can't hear nobody, America. Are you standing with me? Say yeah. Are you standing with me? Shout yeah. Are you standing with Donald J. Trump? Shout yeah. Are you ready for him to come back? These words cannot be dismissed as the isolated ravings of a small-time preacher. Mark Burns was one of the top religious advisors of Donald Trump during his presidency. He went to the White House all the time. Burns delivered this call for war at an event where he stood alongside Donald Trump's son, Eric, and with Donald Trump's former national security advisor, Mike Flynn. 
This declaration of war was not made outside of the nascent campaign to elect Donald Trump president in 2024. It took place with the knowledge of Donald Trump's closest advisors. It's a policy of the effort to bring Donald Trump back to the White House to declare Democrats to be possessed by demons, to come from the gates of hell. Now, as I explained a couple of weeks ago in a previous episode of this podcast, this kind of dehumanization, calling Democrats demons, it's a literal demonization. This is a tactic that is frequently used to prepare people to commit genocide. It's easier to commit violence against people that you don't acknowledge are human beings. So this language from Mark Burns is not isolated because it's part of a larger trend. The description of Democrats as demons or possessed by demons and the calls for violence have become commonplace among Republicans as the Republican Party has become the party of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism has long been a problem in the United States, but it has risen to the top of Americans' political awareness with the rise and disastrous fall of Donald Trump. Trump made Christian nationalism the core of his political strategy beginning in 2016. He gained a devoted following among Republicans by promising to use the power of the federal government to give special, exclusive powers and privileges to Christians. Over the summer of 2022, however, this year, it has become evident that Donald Trump may not be able to run for president again in 2024. Donald Trump is in danger of going to prison because of business fraud, because of illegal espionage against the United States, and because of his orchestration and support for the attempted coup d'etat at the end of his presidency in January of 2021. He is under multiple criminal investigations for these things. So, Christian nationalists are continuing to support Donald Trump, but they're also looking for a new presidential candidate in case Trump is finally held accountable for his crimes. The frontrunner to become the Christian nationalist presidential nominee of the Republican Party in 2024, if Donald Trump is not there, is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Like Trump, DeSantis has made promoting Christian nationalism the foundation of his political agenda. DeSantis has used his power as governor to replace academically rigorous lessons on American history and civics with Christian nationalist propaganda designed by radicals at Hillsdale College, a Christian nationalist institution so extreme that it has failed to obtain national accreditation. Governor DeSantis has been very open about the purpose of the Hillsdale propaganda. 
That propaganda is there to encourage children in Florida public schools to be Christian. And it's there to teach public school children that Christianity is more important than democracy. At the National Conservatism Conference in Miami, Florida this week, DeSantis said as much. Here's what he told the crowd. We need to be teaching kids what it means to be an American. We need to teach them about the founding principles of our country, what, how, why the Constitution is structured the way it is, why our Bill of Rights are like they are. We need to teach them that in the American system, our rights come from God, not from the government. As you listen to Ron DeSantis, I encourage you, don't just allow this language to glide easily over your mind. Sometimes we get so used to hearing the language of Christianity that we stop really processing what it is actually saying. So take a minute to stop and think about what these words from Ron DeSantis are communicating. In particular, I would like you to consider what it means for Ron DeSantis to say that uh, Americans' legal rights come from the Christian God and not from the government. If Americans' legal rights come from the government, well, then we can be confident that our system of freedoms is accountable to the people of the United States of America. Our government is a democracy, after all. This is a vision of liberty that is established by the people for the people. When we talk about the government, that's what we're talking about. It means that we can get to have the freedoms that we believe are important. If our legal rights come from the democratically elected government, we know that there has been and will be a specific democratic process by which our rights have been created and maintained and can expand when the need arises. Well, on the other hand, if Ron DeSantis is right and Americans' legal rights come from the Christian God, then who has the power to determine just what those rights are? Well, immediately, if our rights are decided by the Christian God, 40% of the American population is disenfranchised. Under the DeSantis model, non-Christian Americans will be forced to follow Christian religious codes instead of the Constitution and the system of secular laws that the Constitution has established. Under the DeSantis model of legal rights, Christianity will have the sole authority to decide which rights we have and which rights we do not have. If Americans' rights come from the Christian God, then they, by definition, do not come from the people of the United States of America. If our rights are decided by the Christian God, then there is zero accountability, and there is nothing that the American people can do when Christianity tries to take our rights away. In short, if Ron DeSantis is able to achieve his goal, and Americans' legal rights come from the Christian God and not from the people, then American democracy will have been 
destroyed. If our legal rights come from the Christian God, then Americans will lose the ability to control the legal system to which they are subject. Under the Christian nationalist vision of Ron DeSantis, every single law in the United States would have to be approved by the Christian God. And don't just accept that vague generality of the idea of a nation governed by the will of the Christian God. Ask yourself the important question, how would it work in practice? How would the specific practical decisions of everyday government be made under such a regime, under the will of this God? Once you start thinking about the specifics of it all, the coherence of a God-centered government falls apart. How, after all, if the Christian God is to be accepted as the source of all of our legal rights and all of American law, could we know for certain which rights and laws have been approved by this God? In a democracy where legal rights come from the consent and active participation of the people, we know exactly what the process is. Secular democracy has the Constitution and the laws established by the U.S. Congress and state and local legislatures. Everything is accountable and transparent in a democratic system. Under the theocratic system of Ron DeSantis, there would be no accountability or transparency. The entire legal system of the United States of America would be controlled by just one person, the God of Christianity. Well, perhaps you've detected the flaw in this plan. The God of Christianity is infamously inaccessible. Nobody really knows the mailing address or the phone number of the Christian God. The God of Christianity has no office, no house, or even a secretary. So, the God of Christianity, if you think about it, is not even an American citizen. Technically speaking, there isn't actually any evidence that the Christian God even exists Tens of millions of Americans are fairly sure that the God of Christianity is an imaginary character. Even those people who do believe that the Christian God exists as a literal being cannot produce any photographs, any video, or audio recordings to back up their beliefs. Practically speaking, how can the system of legal rights in America be founded upon the will of someone who never shows up in person to conduct any business, someone who might not even exist. Well, if you think about an example of this, okay, when there's a new category of digital media invented, that's going to happen, right? Okay, when this happens, and Americans need to decide what kind of rights exist to access and control this media. How would the Christian God get involved in the process? How would that work? When Americans finally reach the planet Mars and the land and resource rights have to be determined, how would the God of Christianity inform everyone how those Martian rights for Americans on the red planet would work? How would we know what the Christian God wants? 
There's nothing in the Christian Bible about the planet Mars, after all. Well, of course, this couldn't work. When believers claim to hear from the Christian God, they do so through the murky means of signs and omens and portents and strange physiological quiverings and voices that appear in their heads that nobody else can hear. Voices that are disconcertingly similar to the obsessive, intrusive thoughts of schizophrenics. These vague psychological phenomena are not reasonable ground upon which to build a just and reliable legal system. Even professional Christian preachers are unclear and inconsistent about what their God actually wants. They tell their Christian followers that the Christian God works in mysterious ways. Well, how can clear laws and rights be derived from a mysterious divinity? Every Christian preacher interprets the Christian Bible in a different way. They claim to speak for the Christian God, but they disagree with each other about what the Christian God says and what the Christian God wants. So, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, claims that, quote, in the American system, our rights come from God, not from the government, unquote. But the application of this idea is thoroughly incompatible with any actual system of law. A system of law has to be consistent. But Christianity is fractious and inconsistent because it's founded upon vague ancient stories, subjective intuitions, and psychologically dubious prophecies. A Christian government based on the will of the Christian God would end up being a confusing system of competing priests, preachers, and prophets of Christianity, each one loudly proclaiming the ability to communicate with the God of Christianity. In the end, the most politically powerful of these priests, the ones who could shout the loudest, would end up running the show. Is that who you want in charge? A Christian government inevitably leads toward dictatorship. And why wouldn't it? The Christian God himself is supposed to be a divine dictator, a being that makes all the rules and punishes whoever he likes for no other reason than that he has all the power. The Christian Bible is not a useful text for creating a system of legal rights in our time. Christian holy texts were considered ancient when the United States was founded, and now, nearly 250 years later, they are downright archaic. The Christian Bible is based upon a profoundly limited awareness of the diversity of legal systems around the world. It's from a culture that's foreign to that of the United States in our time and is downright cruel and unjust in most of its morality. The laws of the Christian Bible vary from chapter to chapter, reflecting the nature of the text as a collection of documents from different authors in different historical contexts, reflecting inconsistent political agendas. The legal rights of the government of the United States of America are in no sense derived from Christianity. 
the Christian Bible preaches against freedom of religion. Christianity is against freedom of religion. Look at it in the Bible. And it's against freedom of speech, outlawing blasphemy. The Christian Bible has no concept of freedom of the press, or of the press at all, or of fair legal trials. There is no sense of protection from self-incrimination or from unreasonable search and seizure in the Christian Bible. It's just not there. The Christian Bible never bans slavery, nor guarantees the right of anybody to vote. The idea of democracy is completely absent from ancient Christian texts. Fair jury trials are also not present in the Christian Bible at all. A three-branch federal system with checks and balances is found nowhere in the Christian Bible either. So, the form of government promoted by the Christian Bible is monarchy. All of the governments in the Bible that are supported by the Christian God are kingships. <clears throat> the revolution of 1776 didn't like that. Our American revolution and the constitution that was constructed a few years afterwards were firmly set against monarchy and created a system of legal rights that rejected Christian biblical values. So when it comes to the founding principles of the United States and why the Constitution is structured the way that it is, we need to be clear about this. The United States of America is not a Christian nation. Nothing in the Constitution refers to Christianity at all. The original core of the Constitution states that there shall be no religious requirement for any public office. And the first line of the very first amendment to the Constitution forbids the government from establishing religion. So every single government endorsed by the Christian God and the Christian Bible is a king or an emperor. In the United States of America, we don't have kings or emperors. The legal system of the United States was not inspired by Christianity. The legal system of the United States of America was written in reaction against traditions of Christian political power. The quality of thinking from this speech by Ron DeSantis is like what you would expect from a Sunday school class for middle school children. It is full of assertions that quickly crumble apart upon any serious consideration. They are not intended for serious consideration, of course. Ron DeSantis is doing what Christian preachers do. He's speaking to a crowd that has learned to accept his position on faith, to agree and affirm to what he's saying, because it feels good emotionally to do that. Well, the speeches at this gathering, at the National Conservatism Conference, they were better suited to a church revival than to a gathering of conservative political professionals to discuss actual government policy. Unfortunately, the two are now one and the same. 
National conservatism is Christian nationalism, with a little bit of economic corruption sprinkled in on the side. The Republican Party has taken on the slippery character of a traveling tent revival show, complete with knowing hucksters willing to make a quick buck from the gullible crowd. This National Conservatism Conference was full to the brim with hucksters. It wasn't just Ron DeSantis. All of them were selling the idea that the United States is a Christian nation. In another speech before the National Conservatism Conference, United States Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri told a story that encouraged Americans to follow the example of violent religious zealots who lived almost 1,700 years ago. You might have heard some references to this speech. You probably heard the statement that he made, quote, without the Bible, there is no America, unquote. Well, that statement is an alarming expression of Christian nationalism all on its own with the racism and uh, all of the problems that come along with that Christian nationalist version. But that small statement was only the beginning of a much larger false history that Senator Hawley told to an even more disturbing end. And this has not been covered in uh, journalism. Journalists have uh, not yet discussed this. The false story that Senator Hawley told of a particular violent incident. This incident came from the early days of Christianity. No one has yet examined this part of the speech, the way that Josh Hawley encouraged Christian nationalists to follow the example of violent religious zealots. Here's what Senator Josh Hawley had to say about that. In 8390... A crowd of Christian believers gathered at a pagan temple known as the Serapeum in Alexandria. It was a shrine to the god Serapis. A few years before, the virulently anti-faith Emperor Julian had attempted to throttle Christianity and purge Rome of Christian influence. Among other measures, he seized control of the education system. He barred Christians from teaching. He demanded that all students in the empire study in the ways that he approved. He commanded worship of the Roman gods, and one of those was the god Serapis. So on this day in 390, in the shadow of the state's recent persecution, this group of believers gathered at the temple to take a stand. In the center of the temple, we read, there was a statue of the god clutching in his hands a three-headed serpent, and the legend went that if any impious hand should dare to violate the majesty of the god, the heavens and earth would instantly return to their original chaos. Well, one soldier stepped forward carrying an axe. His name is lost to history. All we really know about him is what the historian Rufinus tells us, that he was better protected by faith than he was by his weapon. But there in that moment, this one man made a choice. He made a choice to challenge the powers and principalities of his age. He made a choice to reject the dictates of emperors. He made a choice to strike a blow for truth. He climbed a ladder to the top of the statue, raised his battle axe, and then with all of his might, drove it home. 
Onlookers reported that as the blow fell, the god's jaw broke away, and as it did, thousands of rats came surging out of the rotten insides. The woke left may seem powerful, and maybe they are. Opposing them might cost us much, but the truth is worth any cost. And that's what courage is in the end. It is paying the cost, no matter how high, for the truth. So, let's count the cost. Let's count the cost. The history of what happened to non-Christians in the wake of the Christian attack against the Temple of Serapis tells who will count the cost of Josh Hawley's violent moral righteousness. It will not be Christians paying that cost. If we allow Josh Hawley's Christian nationalists to take over the United States and destroy our democracy, it's going to be non-Christians who pay the price. So let's not accept Josh Hawley's story at face value. Let's examine it skeptically. Let's examine the true history of the incident that he is referring to and consider its implications. The story that Senator Hawley told us about the destruction of the Temple of Serapis made it sound as if the violent mob of Christian vandals that destroyed the Temple of Serapis were making some kind of brave stand against the Emperor Julian, an anti-Christian tyrant. The actual history of this incident shows that that is not at all what happened. The person who Senator Hawley refers to as, quote, the historian Rufinus, unquote, that person was actually present at the destruction of the Temple of Serapis. The problem is that he wasn't there as an historian. Rufinus was a member of the Christian mob that violently attacked the Temple of Serapis. So, saying that Rufinus can give us an accurate historical representation of what happened that day is like saying that Donald Trump's testimony that he won the 2020 presidential election is reliable. If we look at a combination of other sources, a much more disturbing picture of violent religious zealotry emerges. It is true that Emperor Julian tried to suppress Christianity in the Roman Empire, but his effort was very short-lived and isolated. Julian followed a long line of Christian emperors. They came before him. The Roman Empire had been a Christian state, a Christian government for about 26 years, with just a few years of interruption before Emperor Julian. During most of this time, Christianity enjoyed the benefit of being the official state religion. That was Christian nationalism right back then. Christianity was promoted by the emperors of Rome in this time, not persecuted by it. Non-Christian religions, on the other hand, were frequently persecuted by the Roman emperors. Non-Christians were often banned from practicing their religions, while emperors used the resources 
of the Roman Empire to support the creation and maintenance of Christian churches all across the lands that the Roman Empire controlled. Both the Roman Empire and the churches it supported encouraged mobs of Christians to commit acts of violence against non-Christians. The emperor who preceded Julian on the throne actually waged war against Jews who were just trying to defend themselves after Christians attacked uh, their synagogues and their homes. Julian himself was emperor for only two years, and his reign ended 27 years before the Christian attack against the temple of Serapis. The short reign, just two years, the short reign of Julian was not just a few years before the attack against the temple of Serapis, as Josh Hawley claimed. It wasn't a recent event. There was 27 years of a gap between the supposed cause and effect. It wasn't a cause and effect. The Emperor Julian was followed by Emperor Jovian, who revoked the anti-Christian edicts of Julian and issued an edict of toleration, declaring that citizens of the Roman Empire were free to engage in whatever religious practices they chose. Emperor Jovian was Christian, so, Emperor Jovian was followed by uh, Emperor Valentinian I. Uh, he, Valentinian I was a Christian ruler who banned certain non-Christian practices. He banned non-Christian practices of religion, and he required subjects of the Roman Empire to participate in Christian religious rituals. Emperor Valentinian I was a Christian ruler who was known for his cruelty. He traveled around with two caged bears, whom he used to execute his own servants and officials who got on his nerves. Valentinian I died of a stroke that occurred while he was yelling at diplomats that were visiting his court. During the reign of Valentinian, his brother, Valens, was appointed the next uh, emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire. Remember that the Roman Empire was kind of splitting up at this point. This is where the uh, Temple of Serapis was located, in the Eastern Empire, in Alexandria, in what we now refer to as Egypt. Emperor Valens was yet another Christian emperor. Under Emperor Valens, different sects of Christianity in the Roman Empire began to wage campaigns of violent persecution against each other. Emperor Valens mostly attempted to stay out of these conflicts within Christianity, but he used his imperial power to promote Christianity in general. After the death of Emperor Valens, the Christian Theodosius I became emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire. It was Theodosius I who was emperor when the Christian attack against the Temple of Serapis took place. So let's review that. There's all of these emperors, many emperors between Julian and Theodosius I. 27 years with a whole bunch of different 
Christian emperors. So when Josh Hawley tells this story of the attack on the Temple of Serapis happening because of uh, the persecution by Julian, well, that's just kind of nonsense. It's like saying that um, here in the year 2022, um, uh, we have Joe Biden as president because he was campaigning against Bill Clinton. I mean, it's just historical nonsense to say something like that. There's a huge range of time in between. So, remember, when the attack against the Temple of Serapis took place, Theodosius I was the emperor. He was a Christian. Okay, so this emperor Theodosius I had begun to order non-Christian temples to be closed and given over to Christian bishops to become Christian churches. Inspired by this imperial policy, Christian mobs began to violently attack non-Christian places of worship throughout the empire. It was as part of this campaign of terror that a Christian mob in Alexandria seized control of the Temple of Serapis. Upon hearing of the attack, Emperor Theodosius refused to punish that Christian mob. And instead, he rewarded them by ordering the destruction of non-Christian holy relics. Emperor Theodosius then ordered a Christian church to be built on top of the wreckage of the Temple of Serapis. After Emperor Theodosius showed that support for the destruction of the Temple of Serapis, Christian violence against non-Christians spread throughout Egypt, with the widespread vandalism and destruction of ancient art and architecture, the intimidation, assault, torture, and murder of non-Christians, and the destruction of the largest collection of books anywhere in the world. Most of the texts that were destroyed by Roman Christians were lost forever. Though a few were kept safe from the hands of book-burning Christians by intellectually curious Muslim scholars. So, the story about the Temple of Serapis that Senator Josh Hawley told during his speech at the National Conservatism Conference this week was a lie. The Christians were not courageously rebelling against an anti-Christian emperor. Their violence took place under a Christian emperor a full generation after the very short reign of Emperor Julian had ended. And that was after the better part of a century of Christian emperors. Their attack against a non-Christian place of worship was done with the endorsement of the Christian Roman Empire, not in defiance of it. It wasn't Christians who were being persecuted by the empire. It was the Christian empire that was persecuting everyone else. So you might be asking yourself, well, Josh Hawley got his history backwards. So what? What does it matter? Well, the urgency of Josh Hawley's speech is that it wasn't just really about ancient history. It was about what should happen in the here and now. Josh Hawley was using the ancient history of the attack on the Temple of Serapis as an example of what he wants to happen in the United States. Senator Josh Hawley, 
a member of the United States Senate, is saying that he wants the dark history of Christian persecution against non-Christians to be repeated here and now. Josh Hawley's speech at the National Conservatism Conference encouraged Christian nationalists to repeat this persecution of non-Christians in the Roman Empire, but to bring it to your neighborhood. Senator Hawley chose a story of Christian violence against non-Christians as an example. A United States senator shouldn't be doing that, shouldn't be encouraging violence. A United States senator should speak out against religious violence. A U.S. senator should condemn violence by Americans against Americans. Instead, U.S. Senator Josh Hawley is encouraging religious violence by Christians against their non-Christian neighbors. Senator Hawley is not alone. Christian preachers and Christian politicians are beginning to explicitly call for a religious civil war of Christian Americans against their non-Christian neighbors. Non-Christian Americans have a really good reason to fear a campaign of genocide against them by Christian nationalists. But you know something? Christian Americans also have a good reason to be afraid of violent Christian nationalism. That is a story that is told by history as well. The long and bloody history of Christian governments shows that Christian nationalists are rarely satisfied with simply having a government that supports a generic Christianity. Instead, once they gain power and subjugate non-Christians, Christian nationalists tend to turn their violence against other Christians. So let's go back to this context of the attack of the Temple of Serapis, way back in the Christian Roman Empire. There's an important detail that Senator Hawley neglected to mention in his story, his version of that violent destruction. The Christian mob in Alexandria actually was not united under one banner. Throughout the Roman Empire, Christians were bitterly divided amongst themselves. They were unable to agree about the most fundamental questions of Christian doctrine. There were Arian Christians and Nicene Christians, and they were fighting against each other in the streets. The Christian Roman Empire took sides in this religious violence, and they declared Nicene Christianity to be the official Christian theology of the Roman Empire, and then they began the persecution of Arian Christians as heretics. This pattern continued for centuries. Think about the Salem witch trials. It's just a continuation of this thing that started out in the Roman Empire over 1,000 years after the destruction of the Temple of Serapis and the Christian Roman persecution of Arian Christians. Former Western provinces in the Roman Empire endured the Spanish Inquisition. So, take a look at the history of that. 
Ferdinand and Isabella. Well, first they waged a campaign of genocide against Iberian Muslims and Jews until only Christians remained alive in both Spain and Portugal. Okay. First they got Spain, then they pressured Portugal to get rid of their Muslims and Jews as well. And then what happened? Once they had declared a Christian government in Spain controlling all of that country, they turned their bloody hands against their fellow Christians. The Christian rulers of Spain sent out inquisitors. First, they were sent out to find anyone who didn't agree with the doctrines of the monarch's favored version of Christianity. They were only supposed to, at first, uh, ensure that the thousands of Jews and Muslims who remained alive in Spain but had been forced to convert to Christianity, that they were remaining true to their new religion. Okay. Soon after that, the Inquisitors expanded their mission. They began scouring communities throughout the country to find anyone who didn't practice the very specific kind of Christianity that Ferdinand and Isabella preferred, and those who were deemed heretics, Christian heretics. They were tortured and killed by the thousands. The Spanish Inquisition also produced a list of banned books, including Christian religious books that were deemed likely to lead people away from the one true form of Christianity favored by the king and queen. This banning of books during the Spanish Inquisition is part of the inspiration for the current campaign by American Christian nationalists to ban books and shut down public libraries across the United States. It was this same genocidal royal court in Spain that sent Christopher Columbus out to claim new Christian lands in the east across the Atlantic Ocean. Excuse me, in the west. <laughs> Wrong direction. Remember this, though. Whenever Christian nationalists brag about the role of Christianity in founding the United States, they are referring with pride to the aftermath of the Spanish Inquisition. All of that 1492 stuff that came from the Spanish Inquisition. They're boasting of the use of genocide to expand Christianity in Europe and the Americas, and then through colonization all around the world. They're threatening to impose this terrible violence again, first against non-Christians and then against any Christians who refuse to follow their specific hateful version of Christianity. There is an historical through line from the intolerant, violent Christian attack against the Temple of Serapis to the Christian nationalism that we are experiencing in the United States today. This is a consistent part of the Christian religious identity. It's a problem that needs to be confronted. You can't simply say that Christian nationalism is not true Christianity 
because it's always been there from the very start, from the, 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 the time that the Roman Empire accepted Christianity as its official religion and began to persecute those who didn't go along with that plan. <clears throat> so we can be talking about this Roman Empire and then Spanish Inquisition and all of that, okay? And um, it's easy to lose track of what's happening right here and now, of what U.S. Senator Josh Hawley is really talking about, because he's not just engaged in a theoretical kind of discussion. It isn't just abstract ideology that is at stake in this struggle against Christian nationalism. It isn't just our cherished freedom of conscience that's in peril. It isn't just that American democracy is something that we could lose. Our lives are on the line. Remember the words of Pastor Mark Burns just this week. Though they sound like they could have come from a thousand years ago. Here's what he had to say. I've come in here to declare war on every demonic, demon-possessed Democrat that comes from the gates of hell. I can't hear nobody, America. Are you standing with me? Say yeah. Are you standing with me? Shout yeah. Are you standing with Donald J. Trump? Shout yeah. Are you ready for him to come back? As I'm listening to the Christian pastor, Mark Burns, whip that crowd up into that violent frenzy, can I imagine them forming a mob and doing the equivalent of an attack on the temple of Serapis? Yeah, I have to say, yes, I can. This is happening while politicians give their speeches. As United States Senator Josh Hawley is calling for his supporters to recreate ancient Roman attacks against non-Christians. Christian nationalists across the country are accusing Democrats of being demons. They are calling for war. How do we respond to that? Well, there's one thing that I think we really shouldn't do. The one thing we must not do is respond in kind. And I'll tell you, I'm getting concerned about this because over the last week, I have seen a few progressive Christians respond to Christian nationalist demonization and calls to violence with their own violent rhetoric. Yesterday on Twitter, for example, the hashtag Antichrist was trending as progressive Christians engaged in their own demonization. Progressive Christians were claiming that Donald Trump is the Antichrist and is leading demonic hordes of Republican Christian nationalists. You know, I would like to think that they mean that as a joke. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Either way, the Christian nationalists, do, they do not mean that as a joke. When they call us demons, when they say that we're possessed by demons, they mean that literally. And any kind of language from us that puts horns and you know, calls 
Donald Trump, Satan, or the Antichrist, they're going to think that that's being meant in a literal kind of way. <clears throat> I don't think that's going to be successful. Rhetorically, these progressive Christians, they are trying to take their Christian identity away from the Christian nationalists. I understand that they do not want to surrender their religion to violent, hateful bigots. I get it. But the problem is that as the attack on the temple of Serapis and the widespread persecution of non-Christians by the Roman Empire shows, violent and hateful bigotry have always been a part of Christianity. And when you activate that, you activate Christian nationalism. When you use the language of Christian nationalists, you support their position. Tactically, this is not a fight that we can win. Progressive Christians lack the numbers of supporters to claim that the Christian identity is their own. In both 2016 and 2020, we saw concrete evidence of this. The majority of Christian voters supported Donald Trump. This is the sad fact. Right-wing Christian nationalists control the American Christian identity. Progressive Christians don't. In a broader sense, strategically, responding to the violence and demon-raving madness of Christian nationalism with our own violence and mad ravings about demons, that would be an epic blunder. Genocidal violence typically begins when marginalized people are provoked into responding to persecution with their own violent retaliation. Both sides perceive what they're doing as self-defense, with the difference that the group with the larger numbers and greater institutional support is able to achieve a bloody victory. Any violence against them is an excuse for the beginning of a genocide. If we respond to violent rhetoric and demonization from Christian nationalists with our own violent rhetoric and demonization, we could provide Christian nationalists with an excuse to begin the war against non-Christians that they've been talking about. Yeah, Christian nationalists are nasty, but the fact is that they are human. Donald Trump is not the Antichrist. There is no such thing as the Antichrist. Non-Christian Americans are more plentiful than ever before, but non-Christian Americans are still a minority. And what's more, non-Christians are fractured into many different identities. Some of them are Jews, some are Muslims, some are Buddhists, some are atheists, and many of them are just people who have walked away from Christianity as individuals without claiming membership in any new community. So non-Christians lack the organizational power of Christian nationalists, precisely because we believe in autonomy, the right of people to be free from larger power structures. This week, the Pew Research Center projected statistically 
that Christians in America could become a minority group within the next 50 years. As it is, Christians are a shrinking majority, compromising only 60% of the population. That's why Christian nationalists are freaking out and becoming so extreme. They can't handle being just one group among many. They want to believe that they are the center of everything, the center of what it is to be an American. But, you know, as we look at this projection going into the future of a continuing shrinkage of American Christianity to minority status eventually, we don't really know that that's going to happen. That's if current trends continue. But nobody really can say what's going to happen in the future. Big changes happen. Centuries ago, Christians were able to use the power of Christian government in the Roman Empire to impose their religion on the entire continent of Europe and then expand Christianity worldwide in ruthless wars of colonization. If Christian nationalists complete their takeover of government in the United States and succeed in their plans of replacing our democracy with a religious dictatorship, all dissent could be snuffed out. Non-Christian identities in America could disappear. We really could get wiped out. If we want to avoid that fate, we must not be like the Emperor Julian, responding to Christian violence with non-Christian violence. We have to be smarter and better than the Christian nationalists. People who want to stop Christian nationalism need to move beyond mere response to Christian nationalist outrages. It's important to point out these outrages when they occur. We need to be aware and we need to resist them. But we also need to have nonviolent intelligence responses. We need to articulate a positive vision of the alternatives that we offer. What would the United States of America look like if we could free our nation from Christian nationalism? Well, that is going to be the subject of next week's podcast. And I encourage you to come back a week from now and listen in because we have a lot to talk about.